Uh, let's go ahead and get started with phone calls. Uh, folks have been waiting for several minutes. It's going to be James and Steve and Teresa and Lee Ann. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How you doing? Oh, I, you know, I've got on more layers this morning than I've had for the past, uh, oh, three or four weeks. But, you know, this is Texas. You have to be prepared for just about anything. How about you? Oh, doing pretty good. Got everything uh, ready for the, the cooler weather. Um the last uh, freeze I can remember was April the seventh. Oh, really? I I remember an April the fourth freeze in San Antonio. Uh, as we get outside of town, yeah, there've been a couple of them a little bit later. But you know, the old timers up in Kendall County always say if it thunders in January, it'll freeze in April. And we had two thunderstorms in January, and Easter's late this year. That's the other thing that. Uh, don't ask me to explain how it happens, but it seems like if Easter's early, the warm weather arrives early. If Easter's late, the cool hangs around a little bit longer. But whatever the reason, we've got a couple of cool days going on, but it won't be too long before we'll be sweating and wishing it was cool again. Well, that's a fact. Hey, uh, I've got a uh, a deal for you. The sparrow trap that I keep up this time of the year, Yeah, it's the ones that all the purple martin people use right um i've caught a lot of things but i've never caught a squirrel in there i got a squirrel in there the other day <laughs> Big squirrel. well then i think that tells you uh what he's climbing the poles and looking for yeah i i uh i bait him with them uh uh Oh, nasty old H-E-B tomatoes, because I'm... <laughs> That's the best thing you could do with an H-E-B tomato, other than the organic section. Now, they have some halfway decent little cherry tomatoes over in the organic section, but, you know, that's just red cardboard for the most part. So, yeah, that's not a bad thing to use. Well, I'm after... Uh, uh, somehow, the mockingbirds get in there when you put a tomato in there. Oh, really? Yeah. So, then I when they get in there, I just relocate them. Oh, of course to the compost pile <laughs> now that's a state bird you better not be saying that too loudly on the radio but uh um the squirrels and things i think that's not a bad idea but you, you mockingbirds you might have a might have a game warden or somebody be unhappy if they if they heard too much about that so different neighborhood got, would be a better plan i've got the box that i bought the uh the sparrow trap in and and if the the sheriff comes out i can show him the box oh okay <laughs> oh, we better not go too far down that road. What else is going on in your world this morning? Anyway, we're uh, we're holding the uh, uh, squash, cantaloupe, and cucumber transplants. I think the best way to do that is get them started early and put them in uh, root maker, root builders, and then just hold them until the weather gets acceptable for transplant. I think you're I think you're right about that and you have the capacity to be sure they continue to get very bright light. That's that's the problem I see with so many folks that don't have a greenhouse is they start their seed early but then they don't have the light to keep those plants to a compact size and they end up putting out a little spindly transplant which 
is going to take a while to really turn into anything, anything. but uh, for somebody like yourself, for somebody that's created a coal frame, for somebody that has a small greenhouse, that's a, that's a great plan. We probably ought to talk more about coal frames. Do you ever, do you have a coal frame? Do you ever start anything out in a coal frame, or you always just use the hoop houses? Before I had my greenhouse, I was using a coal frame. I, I got some uh, uh, glass panels from an old uh, school they took down. Mm-hmm. about four foot by four foot and even though they were heavy uh it worked worked just fine if you can if you can remember to uh to ventilate them on uh on days that get above like 60 oh yeah you got it made and nowadays they've got uh those uh plexiglass lids that even have openers for them so for a small potatoes outfit, that's really a good way to go. Oh, it really is. I've I've always been a big believer in cold frames, and for me, it's not as much the temperature as it is the amount of sun you have. Because if you got bright sun shining on those things, air temperature can be fifty degrees outside and can be a hundred degrees underneath. It's just like a car closed up on a parking lot. But the other thing people who are just thinking about putting up coal frames have to remember is it's important to open them, but you've got to have them secured in an open position because, boy, the kind of winds we've had the past 18 hours. Front front blew in here around uh, noon yesterday. But, man, if you don't have that, uh, if you have that lid partway up and it's not anchored, that wind will whip it upside down with enough force that it can break things. So uh, cold frames are great. Just just follow a good plan if you're going to construct one. This is what I tell them when they ask me where to put the big plant or the citrus. I tell them, well, where does the dog sleep in the winter? <laughs> you know, on the south side of the house in the sun. Yep, there you go. That's where you want to put it, man, because that's, <laughs> that's where the dog's going to be. And inside the house, as they say, if you want the best seat in the house, move the cat. And uh, but outside, you watch where the dogs go, and that's going to tell you that's going to tell you where the where the warmest, uh, wind most wind free place is out there. That's the only advice I got. Just follow that old hound dog around. He'll you might learn something. Ah, uh, you know you're you're exactly right about that. Well, James, it's always a pleasure. Anything uh, special going other than uh, just waiting? Do you, do you think you'll be putting your uh, your squash and, and melon transplants out later this week? Do you think this is likely to be the last fairly cold blast, or what What does your weather sense tell you? Soil temperature in the hoop houses are getting above 70. Uh-huh. I haven't checked soil temperature in... Uh, the garden and the fields but when i was transplanting tomatoes the other day that ground was cold yeah and for uh you know squash cucumbers melons i i want to try to hold them as long as i can maybe a week to 10 days into april and see if it really warms up because the ground is still cold sure sure and uh cold and dry and so uh of course, I, I'm a big believer in putting, as you are, some compost, some fertilizer down, getting that soil ready. But uh, roots aren't going to grow till the soil gets warm. So uh, probably uh, if we get a chance to talk next weekend, hopefully we'll be talking about a significant improvement in those uh, both soil temperatures and air temperatures. Yeah, I've got those. Uh, most of the transplants are in root makers, so it, you know I can keep them just about as long as I please sure. because they're, they're not circling. But um some of the uh, cucumbers are getting a little over a foot tall. Yeah. 
And something that's going to put out tendrils and need something to wrap around, <laughs> they can be a little bit more of a challenge. Squash plants, you're just going to have to untangle them a little bit. Cucumbers, you're going to have to you're going to have to separate them uh, physically from each other. So yeah, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Those things uh, will grow an inch a day, uh, and so they're they're a little hard to maintain if we have to do it for too long. And that's what the timing's all about. But uh, variety of cucumbers, what what are you growing as far as cucumber varieties these days? Well, I've pretty much stuck on that sweet success, man. Yeah. They, they they grow like trees in those uh, in those root maker starters, and yeah. I'm I'm really having good luck with the transplants. So, uh, I that's the one I like. Yeah, I like sweet success for a bigger cucumber. I still like that Persian little fingers for a smaller cucumber, but uh, sweet success you can pick it at almost any size you want. It's still going to be a good cucumber. So. What? Well, I cut them big ones and make a big old cucumber salad, and then just uh, graze on it when I, you know, it's just man. I oh, you're just making me hungry just thinking about it. Well, listen, you get out and have a good week, and uh, I look forward to our next visit. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, sir. James, of course, is our uh, resident professional gardener, you might say, and always glad to learn what's going on in his garden. What's going on in Steve's garden this morning? Good morning. Morning, Bob. Morning. Listen, um, I want to plant a memorial tree for my sister who just passed this uh, month. And, I'm sorry um, to hear about that. In, oh, thank you. Uh, I would like something like a tree or a larger shrub that would flower in the springtime at least. So I've got two problems. I live in Spring Branch, so I have very little soil and I have deer. So, <clears throat> Well, of course, we would want to see a very long live tree since it's going to be a memorial tree. So that rules out, you know, a lot of the things that are spring blooming, like red buds are always going to have a limited life. Um, uh, gosh, mountain laurels are a little bit susceptible to storm damage. And, you know, one of the longest live uh, spring blooming trees that you could plant is an old standard pear tree, not a not a Bradford or any of these aristocrats or any of these flowering player, uh, pears. But I see I see regular pear trees that I know are a hundred years old up around uh, along I ten, and that would be a potential spring flowering tree. Um, I have to tell you, I would consider a big crepe myrtle. Uh, it's not so much spring flowering as summer flowering, but that way, rather than have two weeks of blooms in the spring, you'll have four, five, six months of bloom starting late spring and continuing through the summer. You get a variety like Basham's Party Pink, even in spring branch, it can grow 25, 30 feet tall, so it certainly qualifies for a tree. If you step down to a red rocket or a dynamite or one of those, you're looking at 15 to 20 feet of just glory, you know, all through the summer months. I think I would, whatever you plant, I would probably do it in a raised bed, get that tree off to a good start, and then its roots will find its way around the rocks and through the rocks. I don't ever like just chipping a hole in the rock to be able to plant a tree, but um, it's kind of what we did at the nursery. We planted some uh, oak trees, not realizing what a high water table we had, promptly killed them. We planted some more in by just setting the root ball on top of the ground and building up a, a, bell, a bed a tree well around them and they have just flourished and tripled or quadrupled in size over the years so 
Um, those those are the things that come to mind immediately. I will tell you other beautiful flowering trees. Blanco crabapple is a good tree, but not super long live. The uh, Mexican plum. Uh, there's a shrubby form and a tree form, beautiful tree that flowers in the spring. But again, we're looking at things that, you know, 20, 25 year life expectancy, um, something like, uh, something like some of your crepe myrtles, I'd say life expectancy easily a hundred years if well taken care of. So, um, I don't know exactly what your thoughts are in that regard, but unfortunately most of our native spring flowering trees don't you know, don't have a real long life expectancy. Me personally, if I'm going to plant a memorial tree, I'd, I want it to be around for a long time to honor the person that we're thinking of. Sure. What was the uh, first crate myrtle you said? It was something about a pink. Something, There's uh, There is a variety named for Bill Basham, former horticulturist in Houston, but it's Basham, B-A-S-H-A-M. It's Basham's Party Pink. Uh, and it is the biggest of the crepe myrtles uh, in decent soil. It'll reach 35 feet or more. I've seen them with trunks that are probably 16, 18 inches in diameter. And uh, super long-lived. If pink is a color you like, it is by far the biggest of the bunch. Uh, if you want to go, and they're beautiful reds and whites and other colors as well. But if you want something that's truly going to be a tree, it's just a matter of deciding how tall you would like it to be and what color you like and then choosing something appropriate okay and i suppose at least when they're young i need to kind of keep a fence around it i would yeah i would keep the fence around their velvet on there exactly it's uh well sometimes it's rubbing the velvet off sometimes it's just marking their territory but the hardiest tree in the world uh, is going to be susceptible to uh, deer damage so yes at least when they're young um I would I would screen them with something that will keep the deer out. What I do if I'm going to do something like that, I take the five foot high hog wire, the cattle panel things, uh, cut. You know, it's, it comes in a twenty foot length. I'll cut that into four pieces, which is five feet a piece, and then just wire the corners together. And I've got a five by five cage that uh, very effective at uh, keeping the deer. And I'll put a T post or something down at least one corner, and that way the cattle can't get at it either. Yeah. Okay. Well, those are really good ideas, Bob. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate the call, and uh, you call in John Wing Help. Okay, thanks, Bob. Thank Take you, care. Steve. Bye. Bye. All right, two lines open. Grab one if you like, 210-599-5555. We're going to talk to Teresa and Leanne, and Teresa's up first. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. I have, I have a question. Uh, my tomatoes, my fall tomatoes are still blooming, but they're small tomatoes. And I don't want to take them out and plant my spring, but sh- I should just take them out, right? Not necessarily. Um, obviously, if they're still blooming, they are what we call indeterminate tomatoes, which basically are just a big vine. I'm told that... Uh, on the road up uh, the side of the volcano and on the big island of Hawaii, there's an indeterminate tomato that's two miles long growing along the side of that road. So it, they, as long as they're getting fertilizer and water, uh, they can grow indefinitely. Mine sometimes grow out of the top of the cages, hang all the way down to the ground, and once they take root in the ground where they touch the ground, they just take off and keep on going. Now, they will lose some of their vitality, some of their vigor over time. So, I mean, if you don't have room to 
plant new ones as well, then yes, you should probably take them out and plant a stronger young plant in their place. But if your garden's big enough to do so, uh, those ones from last year are going to be producing substantially before the ones that you put in this spring. So I'm going to plant some more in another part of the garden and let those ones from last year go as long as they want to produce. Hmm. Okay, and then my fall spinach yes. is still green. So I don't know if I, because I was getting spring spinach. So I just go and pick it, or is it, I just still keep it growing also? Well, spinach will sig- will sort of uh, signal the end of its life when it does what we call bolting. It'll actually put up a bloom spike, although what comes out is hardly recognizable as a flower. Up until that time, those little the, the leaves will get smaller as it gets warmer. But harvest them and use them. They're still the best and healthiest spinach you're going to find anywhere. And we would call that leaf spinach. We can't grow mm-hmm. it in the summer months, so enjoy it as long as you can. Now, the, the substitute that a lot of people grow in the in the summer months is something they call uh, New Zealand spinach or Malabar spinach, which mm-hmm. is a vining plant that's not even related to spinach. But I guess somebody decided it tastes something like spinach. And uh, don't ask me. I think it tastes like grass. But anybody, a lot of people like it very well. But uh, it's a climbing vine, and it's what some folks grow as a spinach substitute. But uh, it sure isn't leaf spinach. So coax those uh, those regular leaf spinach plants as long as you can it's not so much the temperature as it is the day length that will tell them when to bolt when to start blooming and when that happens you're right at the end of their uh, of their life cycle so at that point you can plan to pull them out and you know plant something else but for now i plant my spinach normally in october and uh, mm-hmm. it goes through if you have what they call the savoy types the ones that have the crinkle leaves mm-hmm. my spinach usually goes up until may or even slightly later if you have the big old non-savoy or flat leaf spinach it always plays out a little bit earlier it plays out about this time of year but man i'm gonna keep growing it and keep harvesting those leaves and until it just decides that it's the end of the line for it so no reason to rush into pulling it up all right thank you so much i appreciate it it's one reason that i always think nobody has really a big enough garden because if you have a small garden you're facing the dilemma that you're talking about to plant something new you have to pull up something old it's really mm-hmm. nice when you can when you can have room to plant the new stuff over on one side and keep enjoying that now some years by this time we would have gotten warm enough and the days would be long enough that your spinach would be playing out but mine's still growing going strong so uh um, I hope you'll be able to continue to enjoy your, enjoy yours for another month or six weeks this year. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Teresa. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. Leanne's turn. Then it'll be Jason and Mark. Good morning, Leanne. Good morning, Bob. I enjoy your show. Well, thank you. I enjoy being here for you. I live up in Bolverde on a piece of the rock. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've been here since 84, uh-huh. and I have... Um, hounds show dogs and so i don't grow grass i have a meadow okay whatever shows up and like right now i have about six different varieties of wildflowers Mm -hmm. and there's one that has come up this year and i've seen it in some other places up here in the 281 area and the blanco area it's a, a yellow flower. It's about the size of a buttercup. 
Okay. It's buried low to the ground, and it goes to sleep at night. Okay. Do that, you know what that is? Because I have been here for years, and I have never seen this flower before, and I was just interested. It's all over my front mm-hmm. lawn. Yeah. And how did it get here? Uh, the birds probably brought it in, or the wind blew the seeds in. Uh, there are actually, I think, four different species. What you're looking at is a primrose. Uh, mm-hmm. They'll be yellow. Two, at least, the primrose varieties have sort of a black center to them. I want to say, and there's one that is a creamy white. The others are yellow. And I think you'll find that yours is just listed either as square bud primrose or as evening primrose. And they make a, they'll go on well into the summer. If you look it up, uh, the the botanical name is, I believe, Enothera, O-E-N-O-T-H-E-R-A, or something like that. And uh common name of yours, I like to say, is either going to be Missouri Primrose, Evening Primrose, or Square Bub Primrose. But that's what you're looking at. You'll probably have them from now on. There are absolutely no negatives to them. Um, they don't stand up to a lawnmower very well because the bulk of the plant body stands up a little above the ground and you're just you're sacrificing some evening beauty if you mow them off but uh i'm seeing more this year than i have seen in several years uh in some of my pastures and in in the small yard around my house as well as my big outer yard so uh uh, look at primrose i bet you that's what you're looking at these things are oh the size of a silver dollar the blooms are just slightly smaller yes yeah you're looking at evening primrose I have my my front yard, which doesn't have uh, many trees. Uh-huh. Um, I, I usually wait until the flowers uh, go to seed, mm-hmm. and so I have um, those little, I don't know what they're called. They look like little daisies, but it's just fascinating to me. I enjoy looking at them, and the dogs have their paths, and so... <laughs> I don't try to. I don't. I'm not going to water grass. I don't do sure. that. These wildflowers and the primrose. Thank you so much because I hadn't seen them before, and I have. Um, I did something, and I. My mom's been gone a while, but she was ninety, and we had a farm out in Gonzales County, mm-hmm. and we on the property we took some of the flowers from the Indian paintbrushes. Right. Right, and we put them up in on my the road in front of my house, and so this year I have quite a few that have this. I put these out here like oh I don't know ten fifteen fifteen mm-hmm. years ago, and so I have some of those that can and they're up now and they remind me of my mom. But, sure. Uh, I just love my meadow. I listen to all these folks that want to water grass and everything, and I'm going, but I, it's so pretty to see all the different <laughs> wildflowers as they come up. And so I live with a, a bunch of dogs in the meadow. Well, I, 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 you know, there are a couple of good new books out, but my favorite uh, for a good wildflower book for you to look for, the author's name is Marshall Inquist, E-N-Q-U-I-S-T. Mm-hmm. And I believe his book is Wildflowers of the Texas Hill Country. It's well illustrated. It has enough uh, description in there to be useful. But um, and and if you since you love your wildflowers and since they do vary from year to year, I remember when my 
business partner and her husband bought their ranch she would go through every spring and she would use a different color highlighter and she'd just go through marshall's book and uh every time she found something say in you know 2010 she'd mark it with a green highlighter and then go back in 11 with a yellow highlighter and 12 with you know some other color and that way you can kind of keep up and some of these things she'll only see them once every four or five years the others will be regulars clockwork you'll see them every single year so uh get a pick up a copy of marshall's book if you can and i think you really enjoy having it now let me ask you a question about the blue bonnet okay and again this is bad soil um if i just throw out blue bonnet seeds am i going to lose them to the birds and things no. i need to no no the the birds do not really seem to go after the blue bonnet seed um and and remember, if you're going to plant seed, get seed for the Texas Hill Country Blue Bonnet because there are five or six different species of uh, Blue Bonnet. And you get these Texas ones, which is what, unfortunately, a lot of people that don't know better sell. And then they do poorly here. Uh, and there's a different one uh, in the Big Bend area just all across the state. But uh, if you're going to buy more seed, I recommend uh, Wild Seed Farms up in Fredericksburg for what you would get. But um, the blue bonnets are hard seed, and Mother Nature does this because she doesn't want them all to come up the same year because there'll be, uh, unfortunately, plenty of years. Mother Nature drops the seed in June usually, and if we have a wet summer, the seed sprouts and starts to grow and then we have a dry fall and everything dies. And so if you throw out 100 seeds, probably only 30 of them are going to germinate and grow next year. The others can wait several years before they sprout and grow because of that hard seed coat. So uh, uh, you're not going to lose them to the animals, but neither are you going to have necessarily a huge number of bluebonnets just because you put the seed out uh, from one crop to the next. Uh, really fresh seed, higher percentage of it will germinate, but that's not what nature intended. Nature intended for these things to be able to endure a multi-year drought, to enjoy a fire uh, or endure a fire burning across the property. So uh, it's one of the reasons it was a very good choice for our Texas State flower. Thank you for that advice. That will be wonderful because, I, again, I just enjoy looking at these. And <laughs> I have because, I, I'm like I said, I'm not, the water's too expensive here, sure. number one. But when I have my big dogs, they have their trails. So mm-hmm. I will plant in between the trails. But thank you so much for that advice. I just really appreciate it. Well, and it was a joy to have the new wildflower this year. Well, it'll probably be with you every year to come. So you enjoy and you give me a call anytime I can help, Leanne. I do appreciate it. All right, let's get back to gardening. Straight back to the phone lines. Can be Jason, Mark, Kathy, and Roger. Jason's first. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. I just had a. Uh, how you doing? You doing okay? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I just had a quick question. Um, I was going to try some Adirondack blue potatoes. Um, coming in the season because I don't think I'm going to get them on the ground this season. Coming. Okay. So uh, my question is, I was only able to get them in a five-pound seed bag. Yep. And I'm kind of wondering, what is your opinion on how to stop, how to store dry seeds? Because uh, I've heard about 30 million ways to do it, and well, I don't know what's right. <laughs> um, they need to be cold, but not frozen. Um, that's you know we're we're in a tough part of the world for storing potatoes because we have such a long hot season and um you know 
there are some people have luck growing potatoes in the fall. It's a real, you know, mixed bag as to what kind of results you're going to have. If I were you, I would store them. Um, yeah, I mean, you got, you need to store them dry, but, uh, I would keep them like in a vegetable crisper or somewhere like that because you don't want super low humidity. You don't want to dehydrate them. And I would plant at least a portion of them, uh, probably in about September or October, just so that, uh, because I just, I'm not sure they're going to last all the way till next February, which is when we traditionally plant potatoes. If you plant a fall crop, you will be getting some of your own seed potatoes as it were you'll you'll have things to dig in november and december that you can replant in february and grow a real good crop of them getting them in in early to mid february it's just it's just awful late to think about planting them now because they're most likely they're going to uh flower and die before they really have enough time to make a decent potato um, April's just, uh, you know, if you're just really pushing your luck yeah. to try to try to grow them this late. I ordered them and I got them shipped because they were back ordered, and I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to get them in the ground right now. It's not feasible. Yeah. So I'm thinking next fall, and I'm, I'm wanting to. That was my question, which you just answered, was how to store those things. Yeah. Hopefully to get them viable to next season because I don't want to run into that problem next season with waiting until April to do them sure. again. Well, I'd so. store them. I'd store them in a paper bag, not a plastic bag. I would. Uh, Put them in an area. I mean, ideal storage temperature would probably be 38, 39 degrees. Um, I don't think okay. it hurts to, uh, you know, to put a little re- uh, thermometer in your refrigerator. I just put a new small refrigerator for, shall we say, adult beverages in my new greenhouse and put uh, some bottles of water in there. And I went and got one out for the first time last night. I've only had it there for about a week. And uh, it was, you know, full of ice crystals. So you want to be certain yeah. that you're not freezing those potatoes because that's the way they used to before the days of using a chemical for everything. The way they prepared potatoes to be sold in stores so they wouldn't be sprouting in the bins is that they would flash freeze them, which destroyed the growing eyes. And uh, that's still, to me, the way that organic uh, people should be. If they're going to try to store potatoes for eating for a long period of time, that's how you keep them from sprouting in the pantry which which will certainly happen otherwise but so anyway store them i would store them in a paper bag i would keep them in that uh 39 to 45 degree range and plant them as soon as the weather's right in the fall or at least plant some of them you might try holding a few of them over till february but with five pounds you've you've got enough to play with okay and would you would you say that would generally just go across for storing most most seeds um, no, I would not because, okay, we're gonna, uh, we're going to get into an encyclopedia. I'll buy a book. I'm not going to make you go over that. No, 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 no. Here, here's the thing about seed. Um, the seed, we're going to put it in a paper bag, but then we're going to seal that up in a glass jar. Uh, you look at my refrigerator. I've got mason jars full of seed. I've got more seed than I've got food in my refrigerator. But we do not want the seed to dehydrate. So for storing seed, temperature is pretty much the same. But we're going to put that package that the seed is in inside of a jar that we seal up. We're not going to do that with our potatoes. I got you. Okay. Well, great, Bob. That that really helps me out and answers a few questions. So I appreciate it. My pleasure to be here for you. Get out and have a good Sunday, and let me talk to Mark. What's going on, Mark? Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. 
Well, I'm glad I didn't put my tomatoes in already. (laughs) (laughs) You and me both. Mine are just sitting there in the corner of the greenhouse looking very happy. And the way that wind's blowing, man, if they they listen to that wind all night, they should be very happy they're still sitting in the greenhouse. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Monday night's supposed to, I think the wind's going to stop and get clear, and it may be... 25 or something so yeah you're gonna have a chilly night in fredericksburg i'm gonna have a chilly night in bernie but would not be surprised to see frost but at this point they're not predicting freezing weather um I, the lowest i've seen depending on the forecaster is 34 to 36 but you're 10 degrees colder which means uh could be problems yeah yeah if it if it gets clear and calm then it, yeah so i got a couple things um are you familiar with microstop it's it's a fung- biofungicide. It's streptomyces strain K61. I'm familiar with the streptomyces um, materials. I'm not necessarily sure of that strain. It's probably um, probably related to you know something. The actinovate is the uh, inoculant that we use to produce. Uh, uh, a uh, you know an antifungal something okay. in the soil. What are you thinking of using this for? Well, I remember I grew these these tomatoes from cuttings last right. summer. Right, right. And then they were really big and got a lot of tomatoes, and they got this problem that we never figured out, and I basically just had to throw them out. Mm-hmm. Some kind of fungal problem. So I started on my new seeds, and they basically looked like they started having the same problem. And I'm not quite sure what it is. Okay. And and um, it, it starts out as little tiny brown spots with no yellow at all, which uh-huh. doesn't really match the description of anything. Right. Anyway, so I was going to try this stuff just as a... Uh, Have you tried using uh, the whole ground cornmeal? Yes. Okay, and that hasn't stopped it? And actually, let me mention that. I, I think I may have found what's causing it. Basically, my the big tomatoes and these little ones, I water them by soaking them in in a big tub of water. Uh huh. And they and the water had not been changed basically ever. I just keep adding water. Oh yeah, and that's a and great leaves, way to spread problems were, around. Yeah. The leaves were hitting the water slight a little bit. So well, I, even without that, you know, fungi reproduce through spores, which float through the air by the billions, and uh-huh. um, unless that container is covered and really sealed golly you need to be flushing that out and uh you know and changing that water um with some with some regularity that's uh that's how a lot of uh commercial growers uh have tried to do things and then if you get disease in one plant you've got disease everywhere so um it's uh um I mean, we don't have that problem in sealed rainwater tanks and things like that. But, man, where you're re-irrigating with the same water, uh, nobody commercially does that. I didn't I didn't realize that would be a problem. Right. So, although I think I finally, my seedlings are six to eight inches. I basically cut off all the leaves that had this on it. Mm-hmm. So some of them, it was over half the leaves. Okay. And, 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 and knock on wood, it's been like a week, and it looks like it's not... It's not progressing. Okay. But. Here, here's another thing I would do, Mark. I'd spray with liquid garlic. Okay. Um, Dr. Elaine Ingham taught us that the way that garlic works 
it's not really fungicidal, but it stimulates so many beneficial fungi. And as she put it, there are only so many sites on a leaf that fungus can get established. And if you have filled all of those sites on the leaf with beneficial fungi, then there's no place for the bad guys to get a foothold. And so I would be using a fairly dilute garlic spray like once a week on those seedlings strictly as a preventative. And, uh, you know, and, and this sounds like it's a foliar issue. It's not a root issue. Um, so that's going to be one thing. The other thing, of course, is be sure that those leaves are dry at night because uh, the long, the most common way that it is spread you know, it's through uh, spores floating through the air. The other thing that will help a great deal, principally because it keeps the leaves dry, is have some air movement going on. I mean, have a little fan, not something that creates a wind, but have something that stirs the air constantly around your little seedlings. Um, in a greenhouse, we do it with what we call HAF, horizontal airflow fans, but that's going to reduce disease issues immensely as well. Okay. And one thing, and I also started. I'm carrying them in and out a lot, <laughs> and uh, I started leaving them under the grow lights more where it's dry and warmer. Sure, and that may have. But helped. I'd I'd but, have a I'd have a little fan, little pedestal fan, or whatever you call the those little kind yeah. of personal size fans. Right. I'd have something blowing, not necessarily directly on the on the plants, but stirring the air around the plants. I think that's going to make a big difference in the health of your plants. Right. Okay. Now I got this streptomyces thing. Is that is that safe? If I just want to try that? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. It's uh, okay. it's sort of a, uh, in effect, uh, like I say, I don't know that strain. I'd have to look that strain up and study it. But uh, it is a it is a natural control. So uh, you know, if it were me, I'd probably use it on half the plants and not on the others, okay. just to judge how effective it is. Right. Okay. Okay. I'll do that. Um, star thistle. <sighs> Five years ago, there was a there was an outbreak out here, mm -hmm. and there was like huge fields that was just solid right. star yep. thistle. Other than that year, it's just been a few here and there. And one part of our yard, we usually have they keep coming up, and we keep chopping them. Yeah. Well, this year that area is like a thousand square feet of of almost. There's thousands of them there. All I of know. A sudden. Yep. So what? How does that happen? <laughs> well, it's it's obviously cyclical. I don't know if anyone fully understands exactly what the trigger is, but uh, you know, suffice it to say that the environmental conditions were right five years ago. They're right, right. this year for them to sprout and grow. And but I, I don't think anybody really knows exactly what those conditions are, and I don't know whether it's that you know they we had plenty of them germinate every year, but something controlled them the other years. I think it's more yeah. likely that just there's something environmentally probably right. related to moisture that has right. suddenly told them, hey, this is a great year to sprout and grow. And thank goodness it's cyclical. I can imagine having to deal with those things every year. But I'm going to be mowing that area as frequently as I can, trying to keep them from forming one single seed. But um, right. if somebody out there figures it out, maybe they'll let us know. Do you have them this year again? You know, I haven't seen them yet, but oh, I haven't. Okay. Uh, we're into spring season in the nursery business, so I'm not walking yeah, right, my property right. as frequently as I would otherwise. I will say I was up cutting some mesquite uh, this week up on the my dam where I've had them appear before, and I did not see them, but I wasn't looking for them. I've got more clearing to do this week, 
And uh, so I will take a closer look uh, when I'm up there uh, getting ready for my dam inspection, as we call it, which happens once a year since it's a flood Uh control structure. And I just uh, try to be sure there's absolutely nothing woody or brushy growing. But I did not see any any of the multistar thistle coming up yet. But I'll sure check it out. And so that little prickly head, is that one seed, or is there a lot of seeds inside? There are seeds inside of that, and they also make additional seed at the base of the plant. Right. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I've been I've been chopping a lot. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, it's okay. good exercise. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the peach forecast. You know, we had that really cold and right. it knocked out most of ours. But, but the um, growers are saying because it was we had such good moisture, mm-hmm. they're still expecting seem like some, something around a seventy five percent crop or something like that. Uh, it's news to my ears. Good news to my ears. Right. I'll it's, hope that that hope that that happens. Mark, it's always a pleasure. All right, let's get started with Kathy. If we have to hold through the news, Kathy, I'll sure do that. But how can I help you today? Okay. Um, I recently received a, a ra- raised bed table. Okay. And it has the liner and everything with it. However, when I went into the Internet to check on raised beds, the first thing I thought of was that I'd like to um, waterproof it to, to make it last uh, as long as it could. Okay. And um, I wanted to know, I found one particular product uh, from, it's called Gardner's Penetrating Water Proof, and mm-hmm. it has juniper, and it said that you should use something without VOCs. Yeah, volatile so organic compounds. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, um, I live out here between uh, near Schulenburg, out in the country, uh-huh. halfway between uh, San Antonio and Austin, and the local places around here that I know of don't have anything like that or any other that I can find. And I wondered, what was your suggestion? And what is the what is the table made from? What kind of wood? That I don't know. I okay. was thinking about that, and I was going to call the manufacturer and find out. Okay. It's my, that's for sure. My general suggestion is an epoxy-based paint. Um, those are going to be low. I doubt if they have any, but if they have any VOCs, it will be very, very low, uh, in that. And, you know, of course the thing we're trying to do is keep moisture from really getting into the wood proper. And, um, they're various sealants. The problem is that most of them don't last real long. There are various, uh, and, and so many of them do contain the things you want to get away from, which they call VOCs or volatile organic compounds. Even if you have some of those, you know, in all honesty, they are, as the name says, they are volatile. They turn to a gas and go away. But there are some good epoxy-type paints. Uh, they're the things that we recommend when people uh, have, say, play equipment and things like that that's made out of treated lumber, and we certainly don't want our kids or ourselves coming into a lot of contact with treated lumber. So um, this is the type of paint that we use to uh, seal up the wood. If it were me, I would be painting pretty much all of the uh, the wood surfaces that are going to be exposed to soil, where there's going to be moist soil there. And then where you have a seam along the edge, along the ends, along the bottom, after I have painted with something like that, I'm going to probably go back in with some sort of a silicone sealant and put a bead of that along where the two uh, pieces of wood come together. 
just to, you know, reduce the chance that you're going to have a, a place where rot is likely to start. Now, I have to qualify this all this by telling you that if you ever do this again, you know, don't buy it. Uh, there are uh, they probably be a little bit more expensive, but you could use a product like Trex, which is a synthetic wood made with wood fiber and plastics, which will never rot. Um, there are and I think it's going to be more widely available in the future. Things like this super kill dried eco vantage wood that uh, they've had in ground contact for 30 years with no rotting. But with this uh, with this table system that you have. I'd, I'd like to say I'd be go to a good paint store, not a not a big uh, box store type of place, but go to a professional paint dealer. Tell them what you're trying to accomplish, and I think you'll find there's some epoxy-based paints that will do the job very effectively and very safely. Okay, thank you very much for that. One other question then is raised bed soil versus the regular potting soil. Um, what I've been reading again. Uh, over the internet for raised beds they say that you should get this special blend that's for raised beds rather than using regular dirt or and they would be happy to sell it to you right yeah (laughs) it's it you know the only thing internet is just a horrible source of information uh for most things It's uh, because it's just not for this area. Generally speaking, I tell people go to dirtdoctor.com. That's the most expansive site that is good for our area, but I doubt if Howard, you know, covers this sort of topic. Um, My suggestion is just look for a soil, and it's probably going to be a a blended material. Uh, It's so hard to find just decent topsoil anymore. But the important thing here is go with a soil mix that is based not on canadian peat moss which is what most of them are but one that's based on either core coir which is coconut fiber or a good composted material and those will be excellent materials uh you absolutely do not have to go with something specially made for a you know a a raised bed type of thing they just this they're just trying to make you think you have to you paid a fortune for this table now they want you to pay another fortune to you know to get it up and running and you just don't have to do that Uh, go with any good soil mix but be sure that it's compost or core based rather than uh, canadian peat based Okay. Well, thank you very much, Bob. Appreciate and do it. ensure that there is plenty of drainage. Um, if it doesn't have adequate drainage, drill some additional holes. But once again, when you do that, you're going to need to go back and seal the surface of that wood with another application of paint or sealer, or whatever it is you decide to use. But uh, um, I'm not a big fan of these flood irrigation systems, and I really would not recommend that your table bed hold water. I want to see it drain really well. And uh, the other thing that you can do if you're worried about your little holes that you drill being a place that rot could start, um, you get a little piece uh, of PVC. Let's say we get some really thin PVC. We drill a hole that's only just slightly smaller than that. And then we're going to use some silicone uh, sealer. And we're going to put this little piece of pipe through the wall so that we're not having water run through constantly in contact with the wood. We've actually created a little drain tube, so to speak. The beauty of that is that on the other end of it, the outside end, uh, if you want to, you can channel where that water goes. You don't have it just 
dripping out on the floor or in some place it might be inconvenient. You could actually get a little bit of aquarium tubing or something like that and, uh, you know, carry that moisture off to a place that it's not going to cause any problems. Mm, very good. Well, thank you so much. Really well, you are talking to you this morning. It's always a pleasure. Good luck, and let me know how your new table works out. Okay, thank you. Thank Bye-bye. you, Kathy. Bye.